0: I was rowing along the shoreline in the dusk, and from behind a promontory, uh, this huge black hump gracefully swam out towards the centre of the loch. It was just like the pictures in the book that I brought with me from the previous expedition.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Power and Motor Yacht Podcast, your birth for the best stories in boating.
0: Each week, my colleagues and I will bring you everything
1: from salty stories to thought-provoking trend discussions, as well as interviews with the most interesting characters to ply the sea. Whether you're listening from the boatyard, your slip, or hopefully well underway, we're glad to have you aboard. Welcome to the Power and Motor Yacht Podcast. I'm Simon Murray, and joining me is naturalist and monster hunter, Adrian Shine, who has been leading the Loch Ness Project since 1973 in the Highlands of Scotland. Adrian, thanks so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. Yes, hello. Pleasure here too. So is it safe to say you're the preeminent expert on all things Loch Ness, including Nessie or the nickname given to the resident mythical creature in the water?
0: No, it's never safe safe to say that of oneself. I'm sure that everybody involved thinks they're the preeminent one. It's that sort of subject. <laughs> but you've been, uh, I think, you've had a hand in surveying
1: and uh, being on the the lake or the lock for a while now, right? For for decades at this point. Well,
0: so, uh, I made my first foray in 1973. Yes. So,
1: in all that time spent on the lock, on the lake. Where do you think the Loch Ness ranks in the most scientifically and casually observed bodies of water? Because I would imagine, you know, the narrow 23 mile long rectangular lake is number one. Is that
0: not true? It's the most famous, it it is arguably the most famous lake in the world, Mm -hmm. uh, but it is not the best understood. I would say that uh, probably Lake Windermere, would be better scientifically studied. But in terms of casual endeavor, particularly by um, aspirational engineers rather than zoologists, I'd say Loch Ness definitely ranks up there.
1: And, uh, you know, as we mentioned, you've been studying the lake for decades. What drew you there in the first place?
0: So I didn't begin with a fleet of uh, over 30, vessels, uh, I began with a rowing boat in 1973 on Loch Mora, because a previous expedition called the Loch Morar Survey had established that Loch Mora had a similar monster tradition to Loch Ness. In fact, a monster was supposed to have attacked a boat in 1969, and I took an interest in that, and as a young and immortal man, uh, I rode a rowing boat around Loch Mora at night uh, wow. because I was a, I was a natural uh, I was an amateur naturalist then and I still am right and uh, I knew that aquatic creatures great and small come towards the surface at night and I thought well um, this was going to be quite easy really on a loch where monsters were attracted to boats uh, whether of good or bad intention uh, then that's where i would be and so i took a powerful light aligned with a camera and a a big flash big flash gun and i drifted about on block with a sea anchor with a drogue Uh, used to row upwind from a tent and drift then slowly back uh, I did not have an encounter, at least um, not in the way I'd contrived. Right. But I did see I did see a monster on uh, my second day, which is when most people, most of the hunters, do you know, uh, when you are unfamiliar with the circumstances. It uh, I was rowing along the shoreline in the dusk. And from behind a promontory, uh, behind me, obviously I was looking astern because I was rowing, uh, this huge black hump gracefully swam out towards the center of the loch. It was just like the pictures in the book that I brought with me from the previous expedition. So I stopped rowing and it stopped rowing. I, uh, it stopped moving. I took a photograph and um, tried to get my cine camera ready. But then I began to push on the oars, to back on the oars to get closer. And um, as as I got closer, it stopped looking like a great big hump and began to look like a huge head, partially submerged, and then ripples broke away from it. So it was rather a moment of truth but it was a rock, two inches high and about six feet long breaking surface. It had not swum out, it was my movement. Uh, It had not come out from behind the promontory, it was actually in front of the promontory, but because it was getting dark, I hadn't seen it. And there was a lesson, and it's one I've kept with me uh, all these years. I, I can't I had, believe I had a feeling we
1: wouldn't start this off just by saying yeah, and that that's what it was. It was I found Nessie. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: that would have been too easy, wouldn't it? Right.
1: <laughs> but so, so you you guys use a fleet of princesses back in the '80s, early '90s. Do you guys still yes. use motorboats today? Do you still use
0: princess? Oh, yes, we do. But we built we built our own boat, the John Murray, on a beach uh, in 1981 to house a big Furuno scanning sonar, uh, which we use at Loch Ness. See, things had moved on quite a lot. We weren't looking for Jurassic predators anymore. We weren't looking for reptiles. Right, right. But we we were trying to find out what some rather odd sonar contacts were, ones that had been gained by other expeditions. We knew the sorts of things, the sorts of illusions the Loch were capable of in terms of the eyewitnesses. And we, we knew that a lot of the photographs were fakes, you know, mm. well, certainly the most famous and the good ones, they're all fakes. <laughs> but had we got the right to be right? Basically, if there were uh, odd sonar contacts coming up in this place with the reputation that it had, wasn't it only fair to actually investigate the sorts of contacts that people were getting? It was sort of my job to do that. And so we built this flat pack sonar search vessel on a beach in 1981. I based it on inflatable sponsons built by um, professionals uh, because quite often I build my own things. I built a little submarine at Loch Mora, a little uh, submersible hide, I did that in the back garden. But um, this boat, the flat pack one, had a Ford Anglia van engine in it and a forward cabin. The point, we, the point of the design was that it would drift downwind soundlessly without engine noise. Um, as, you, as you will well know, if you turn the engine off on a conventional vessel, it pretty much turns broadside straight away. Right. Well, mine didn't, (laughs) because my superstructure was forward and I had slots for dagger boards aft at the stern, which reinforced the tendency. In fact, in the event, we we hardly needed those. And because Loch Ness is long and straight, and the wind is either from one end of the loch or the other end, the southwest wind is the prevailing wind, but the other wind is the northeasterly and the Great Glen Mountains, Channel the wind along the glen. Hmm. Um, it was a good way of working. So you go upwind, you needed the engine, but downwind you didn't. And uh, that was that was uh, basically how it worked. Wow! So okay. that was the Other vessel. <laughs> and okay. And now sure. we just we just use motorboats of opportunity. Oh the right. One we, the one that we're using at the moment is called Deep Scan. After the exercise in 1987. Mm-hmm and it's run by the Loch Ness Center at Drummond Rocket. Uh, they sponsor some of the things we do and I get to use that boat. It has to earn an honest living during the summer taking visitors out on the loch. But at other times um, and in the evenings, uh, we can use it for research purposes hmm. and to support scientific endeavor. Uh, one of the main ones uh, was actually a couple of years ago when we supported Professor Gemmell's environmental DNA exercise, Hmm. Um, basically a survey of Loch Ness, uh, taking water samples. We did the deep water sampling for that. Um, So there were samples taken from end to end and side to side and top to bottom. Um, There weren't any reptiles, (laughs) surprise, surprise. Uh, but it's in still, cool. oddly enough, it's still left room for the, um, the modern theories, which are all fishy ones of different sorts, rather lateral theories, and that keeps the fun alive.
1: So uh, I was wondering, what's changed over the years, especially in recent years, as technology has, av- has advanced? Uh, are people flying drones now over the lock?
0: Yes, and also they're looking on Google on the satellite channels. Uh, the interesting thing is, of course, that uh, w- what with phone cameras and the, the, Google, the Google map uh, encounters that people claim sometimes, is that um, th- they're really ideal because of the low resolution of the pictures. It makes them arguable. Right. And that's the great thing. So you see boat wakes, for example, on Google. And Google can do some rather strange things uh, to photographs as well. Uh, there's one of a, of, a, of a known vessel on, on Loch Ness where, and its wake. Uh, that caused quite a lot of controversy a few years ago.
1: So do, do you see more drones flying? Is, is more people uh,
0: interested now? Well, yeah, drones drones fly about a little bit, They don't encourage them around Urquhart Castle, (laughs) right? Right. (laughs) They they stake it out with their wardens and warn people off. They're very jealous about that sort of thing. (laughs) But um, no, the biggest technological advances in zoological terms was, of course, the uh, the eDNA exercise that we uh, we conducted and helped, assisted with uh, P- Professor Gemmell uh, from New Zealand, from the University of Otago. Uh, but we've covered that. And so, like you mentioned
1: before, you know, you came to, came to the lock from this incident. Uh, and you were interested, I think, early on in the monster in Nessie. But it seems like your stance has evolved over the years. And that you're more interested in the diverse ecosystem in the lake and other things to be learned from the lock itself, right? Is that correct?
0: That's perfectly true. Ever since I built a submersible hide back in nineteen the winter of 1973 and sat in it you know, on the bottom of the shallow water of Loch Mora, I found all sorts of things of interest. I was captured by the interest of... Uh, the things that, f- that, f- that swam by that weren't actually monsters. And that's the, that really accounts for the way I've done things since in terms of using Loch Ness and the controversy of Loch Ness to as a sort of a vehicle for enhancing the understanding and the research at Loch Ness because Loch Ness does have a certain cachet which one can exploit and um, for example you know if you advertise the fact that you're going to take a six meter core out of the sediment of Loch Ness 200 meters down um, and you write to a few scientists you know would you like uh, some of this mud the answer is very probably yes because it, it lays itself down in nice layers pages pages of a book to all the environmental e- episodes that have taken place in the last 10,000 years, ever since the ice melted. Hmm. Um, so we can seduce collaborations, uh, which you can find on our website, which is, uh, which is um, Loch Ness Project.com. And uh, you can see all the, all, all the different diverse things we've been able to, to foster and force um at Loch Ness.
1: And you've mentioned that you you built that submersible it seems like nowadays you guys are using state-of-the-art autonomous submersibles right the technology has really increased in leaps and bounds to yes. survey this. Yes.
0: yes in zoological terms the most elegant thing was undoubtedly the environmental DNA advances because prior to that we were using nets and water samplers uh, microscopes uh, to identify and to count the the organisms in the loch. But a mere water sample now does the job pretty much. Well, well, certainly a few water samples. Uh, In terms of sonar and that sort of technology, then undoubtedly the the biggest contributions have been high resolution multi-beam sonars and autonomous vehicles of which we've been very fortunate to have collaborations from the Kongsberg company in Norway. And they've used the lock for testing and we've managed to collaborate in terms of finding some things of interest. We even found the Loch Ness Monster in 2016. Um, it was the Loch Ness Monster, it was 30 feet long. It had a six or seven foot head and neck on it. Look, just the job, and it was it was the Loch Ness Monster model from the film *The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes*, which was lost in the Loch in 1969. So, case closed. You guys found it. You, you did and it. We found, it. and there it was. Yes, right there it was, and, uh, and and we've we found other things with it as well. The wreckage of John Cobb's uh, speed record vessel *Crusader*. Uh, in which he was killed in 1952. Uh, we did actually find that as well wow. after after quite a few years of, of trying, but we did.
1: And whatever came of that, did, was that
0: removed? Uh, well, it's still there. Is uh, it? Okay. Yeah, it's been a very, pretty delicate condition. It's birch ply a lot of it, hmm. but it was remarkably intact and the engine was still in it. Uh, the, the de Havilland ghost engine. Wow. That so was a fascinating moment.
1: That's a pretty cool byproduct of this solar. Yeah, absolutely, scan for the absolutely.
0: The great thing about um, looking for things on the locked bed is that they don't move and they are there.
1: Right. They're just being. They're just uh, there, waiting to be found, so to speak. Exactly. Uh, but so you so you mentioned that you had this fierce, horrifying encounter with a rock, right? And and that kind of is a question that I was wondering because it seems like of all places between the Loch Ness and Loch Mora, you know, this this creature is associated with these, these locks. And and what is the logical reason that you've come to behind, I don't know, the, the thousands of reports that say something like, I've seen this long necked sea serpent in the lock. Why, why did it start here? And I know it goes back To uh, I think it was how far back, it's like 530 something where an Irish monk was said to come across this monster. Well,
0: they worked a lot of miracles. So um, I I don't personally associate St. Columba's alleged encounter with a water monster in the river Ness uh, with what really happened since. What we have though, and you're quite correct in saying We have a sea serpent in Loch Ness. Uh, It is exactly the form that used to be called the Norwegian sea serpent um, back in the 18th century. And in the 19th century, turned up off the coast of New England, off Massachusetts, the harbour of Gloucester. And hundreds of people saw it. It was a multi-humped organism with a head and neck, Um, not a particularly long head and neck, one would have to say, but that is exactly the form that turned up in Loch Ness, Um, and you asked why, and that's a good question. The point was, in the 19th century, people were fascinated by sea serpents, the the Norwegian one, your, your own New England one, and by 1850 the sea serpent which was seen as being a big snake but wiggling the wrong way uh, you know that is vertical loops a bit like the cartoon Nessies or sea serpent postcards you might get today mm-hmm. um, it turned into a plesiosaur that is the jurassic reptile contemporary with the dinosaurs and um, You see, the point is we try and keep our myths rational. We evolve them. And so ghosts might once have been regarded as the souls of the departed, but now people might consider them some form of relict energy of some sort. Mm. We try and keep up to date with the conventional wisdom so as not to be too far out on the fringe. Right. Well, in the case of, uh, of, of sea serpents, which wiggled the wrong way, it was more rational after the 1820s and the discoveries of fossil marine reptiles in England uh, and then later in North America, it became more rational to try and associate what was seen with what had once been actually there. In other words, extant rather than extinct plesiosaurs. And that same process happened at Loch Ness within months. What had taken years in terms of sea serpents um, actually took place within just a few months at Loch Ness. And why was this? Well, you see sea serpents were going out of fashion by the 1930s the sea is an awfully big place and you can't really go hunting sea serpents. You wouldn't expect to succeed, but wouldn't it be really nice if one of them got stuck in an inland lake into a more finite space? And that is what the first investigator of the subject, Rupert Gould, thought had actually happened. He thought that one of his sea serpents, you see, he'd written a book in 1930 called The Case for the Sea Serpent. And he'd collected all sorts of very credible reports from around the world. And this evolution, as I put it, of the sea serpent into the plesiosaur uh, is pretty well documented in his own his own book. But when he came to Loch Ness and he was sponsored to come to Loch Ness and he wrote a book about it called the Loch Ness Monster and Others, he found that people were seeing exactly that thing in Loch Ness. The, the story had broken in the spring and was sort of increasing momentum and I think it was his publication both in the in the, uh, in the newspapers and his book which actually then told people what they should be seeing. And the great thing about Loch Ness is that being finite he hoped that it would allow this phenomenon to become amenable to investigation and identification. And in a way that is what happened because we found out that the sea serpent reports were due to boat wakes because Loch Ness isn't just a lake; it's, got a, it's part of a canal, part of the Caledonian Canal, which runs from sea to sea, from east to west. Um, it saves going round the top of Scotland, the Pentland Firth, rather, rather hazardous voyage. Mm-hmm. And so, quite large vessels had been moving through Loch Ness since the nine, about 1820. Uh, they were making wakes. But it was only when the, the loch had a reputation for monsters, for sea serpents, if you wish, that people interpreted these multi-humps, not as boat wakes, but as sea serpents or, if you like, nesses. Wow. What, that is what happened. And, and Gould was correct, because in the end we found out, yes, the multi-hump ones were boat wakes. So this collective phenomenon of people- And probably, probably quite a lot of the New England ones were as well, your very own. Because around 1818, passenger vessels, steamships were actually beginning to move around the East Coast And I I do believe that the New New England Sea Serpent owes a lot to the novel steamships. Hmm. You see, sailing ships do not leave wakes, which could be mistaken for monsters. The reason is that if there's no wind and the water is calm, and this sort of monster, by the way, is only seen in calm weather, both your Sea Serpent and the Loch Ness Monster in the sea serpent form is only seen in calm weather. The sailing ship is going nowhere. It is becalmed. So there are no wakes. When When the wind does blow and your sailing ship begins to move, it leaves a wake. But that wake is obscured by the waves raised by the wind which is driving it. And as the wind blows stronger, So the waves surrounding the wake get bigger and you don't see the wake. And that is why calm conditions bring forth monsters. (laughs) It's an amazing thing that the true culprit is just boat wake. (laughs) So it's ships. Plain and simple. And it ships, and when the ships came in, which is coincident, bar a year or two with your New England sea serpent. It's fascinating. Rather, so, rather neat. It's amazing how that,
1: that uh, this phenomenon, this collective believing in this creature has resulted from simple, simple physics. <coughs> Ships yes. moving and creating wake. I mean, that, that's as simple as yes. it is, you know?
0: But the key thing is how we interpret these things. Cause steamships have been moving through Loch Ness since 1820, but it was only in 1933 that these wakes were actually seen as sea serpents, as, um, as monsters, if you like. So, half the equation is our own expectation. I do not say that we see what we want to see all the time, although we certainly want Loch Ness monsters. We certainly want to be a special person, you know, a chosen one, if you like. No, we see what we are supposed to see we see something we don't understand, we seek explanations and we seek them in a sense in a conventional way. And we all know what should be in Loch Ness and what we are meant to see. And so that's why we see monsters.
1: And so you mentioned
0: before the operation deep scan
1: where you guys use sonar to basically map out the entire lock back in uh, the 80s, in 87, I believe. And obviously there was no monster to be found, but what good has come from these years or decades of research into the lake? I'm sure there's a lot of scientific understanding that you've taken away that's got nothing to do with any type of prehistoric monster.
0: Yes, that's absolutely true. And to be fair, this began even before the Loch Ness Monster became a, a, a big controversy. Uh, there was a chap called Wedderburn working at the beginning of the 19th century with Sir John Murray, and they discovered phenomenon uh, in Loch Ness to do with temperature gradients and underwater waves, seiches if you like, internal sizes, which, um which were very dynamic and unusually actually extended our understanding of these effects at sea. Normally, <coughs> phenomenon are discovered at sea and then translated into fresh water. This worked the other way around. And we, we've, in our own small way, were able to visualize some of the um, phenomena we're talking about, the division of the, the lake into layers in the summer, the, the great waves that move, back and to um, in in these layers, uh, the dynamics of the thing. uh, Some of which actually do contribute to a small number of monster sightings because the surface water on Loch Ness can sometimes flow against the wind. And you can see logs, which you think might be logs because they look like logs, but then you see that they can't be logs because they are swimming against the wind. Mm. So they must be alive, right? But of course, they're not. The water is moving slowly against the wind because the whole surface is sort of rocking like a bath of water back into uh, with about a 50 hour cycle. Uh, so it's one of the interesting things. There's the, um, there's the sediments I spoke about earlier, you know, these great tubes of mud. Uh, we pulled we managed to pull out of the lock uh, showing environmental change. Uh, it's quite fashionable now we want to know what's going on, don't we? Uh, well, it's a barometer
1: and I, I think i I think you made it very clear as to where you stand on the possibility of this being a real life thing, right I mean you're pretty much in the camp of this is just a phenomenon that people want to believe in what what would you say kind of is the typical day now for you i i, don't, I imagine you're not looking for nessie anymore so what, what do you do over at the lock
0: well i'm still fascinated with the thing as a phenomenon uh, at the moment i'm actually writing a book about sea serpents oh really because, okay. because that's where it started right Um, It's all to do with the right to be right. In Britain, only about 17% of people think there's any likelihood whatsoever of a Loch Ness Monster. And they are are probably wrong. (laughs) The rest of the people are probably right. But it takes no effort to be right. What if... We call this parsimony. What is the most likely explanation? And it, it's, a good, it's a good rule to follow. But parsimony does not guarantee that you are right. So that's why uh, what attracted me at the beginning as a possibility is now something I feel obliged to explain. Mm. And i found it absolutely fascinating along the way to look at the origins of our sea serpent tradition, uh, the way in which it evolved into sea monsters, and then the way in which these monsters actually came into inland waters, if you like, in popular Mm. expectation. I'm talking in um, figurative terms here, you understand. Right. Um, I think it is because uh, the reason for the transfer was that lakes are finite. And there's a theory, I think it was Loewenstein who came up with the idea that we are most curious about those things, those mysteries, which seem imminently solvable. Well, as I said, you can't really plausibly go hunting sea monsters because really the sea is too big But of course lakes are not in general too big. And so the accessibility, the finite nature of Loch Ness and the fact that it's accessible by roads means that everybody can play the game. You can come and park in a lay by, look out at the water and you are on the brink of discovery. You fit the criteria for the imminently solvable mystery. Right. <laughs> That's why I think Loch Ness has this preeminence. And of course, you have North American lakes as well, with these traditions. Okanagan is one, uh, Champlain is another, and you've got lots more. Hmm. They are finite. They let they let us they let us fantasize. And even though this
1: obviously our magazine power motor yacht pertains 99 to the water there is also bigfoot out there that is another aspect that fits the fits the bill of what you're speaking of where people can imagine and believe in spotting this humanoid creature walking through the woods wherever they are it, it seems great like thing is, yeah.
0: the great thing is you've got some
1: woods exactly and there's no Try. it's no specific area it's like he could be in alaska he could be in canada he could be in i'm sure there's spottings in the uk too i would think i mean so this guy this guy gets around but he's supposed to be a primitive creature so it does speak to what you're saying where we want to believe and and anyone could fit the bill of of a monster hunter very easily
0: exactly any bit of wood will do there right. are some big. There, I believe, there are Bigfoot stories from some quite urban areas where there's the odd tree. <laughs>
1: right. He just came down to uh, to London to just you know have a cup of
0: tea or something. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's tr- truly, yeah. it's crazy. It's just it's just like sea serpents getting into Loch Ness. Right. We start with the sea serpents. You know, you cannot get away from the sea serpents. <laughs> right. Well, so
1: what I, I know you mentioned you, you're writing the book now. Can we, yeah. is there, uh, is there a, a set time when you're looking to co- complete it or are you kind of just in the middle of it, kind of compiling notes and, and writing? No, it? no, I
0: think, I think, I think it, it'll be available for publication and that's another story, of course. <laughs> right, right. What well, can we expect it sometime next year or?
1: Yes. Oh, really? Okay, great. Yes, and that kind of so, delves into the myth. Oh yes, yeah, so
0: I've got to, I've got a have got to, got to finish the thing before I've, I finish up with the Loch Ness business that <laughs> I'm getting on, you know.
1: Right, right. Well, you look great, and uh, I, I, I know we've kind of hammered this to death, but I think I have to ask: Is there any possibility that that this creature can be found? Are there even reptiles in that habitat that? it might be mistaken for a, a sea snake or something. I know you mentioned how the, the, the movement is more vertical than horizontal as a, sne- as a sea yeah, snake yeah. would be, you know, that's the movement that a typical sea snake would move through the water. But is there any possibility that these people are seeing something that is plausibly explainable?
0: Well, The way we're looking at it now, ever since the the 1970s, quite frankly, we've not been looking for for Jurassic monsters. We've not been looking for reptiles. It's too cold for their reproduction, certainly contemporary ones. The leatherback turtle does manage to swim in our cold Northern seas. Uh, Turtles are a good shape for retaining heat and the leatherback turtle's got a few other tricks as well. So you've got to be careful, nature can surprise us. But basically, we've only been looking at fish possibilities. In other words, we're divorcing what we think might be possible from what people are seeing as stereotypes. So the sea serpents, we know, are boat wakes. And the long necked plesiosaurs are probably water birds seen on very calm water where you cannot judge distance. So is it possible in a, in a lake, Loch Ness, which is of low productivity where we long ago found that it could not sustain a population of resident very large predators Although the odd seal can make a living over winter with the salmon running in. Oh, that makes sense. Remember that too, the bonus, you see, to the food chain. But is it possible that there are more lateral solutions which would not be picked up by the environmental DNA experiment? And we came up with three uh, to keep the thing alive, if you you like. (laughs) Mm. One is my favorite, which is the Atlantic Sturgeon. Not known to breed in Britain, but they have run up British rivers, 50 miles or so when navigationally challenged. Uh, They only spawn in fresh water, they do not feed. Uh, And also one entering once in a blue moon, uh, wouldn't find a mate and would go away again. So if you're looking for a large creature unusual to Loch Ness, but which was elusive, then the sturgeon's a damn good bet, because it wouldn't be there most of the time, and you can't get more elusive than that. Hmm. Another lateral idea is a fish introduced by man. And a chap called Dick Rayner came up with the Wells catfish, the European catfish, which is a huge, ugly thing. Some witnesses have said that what they've seen is very ugly. close to, and in the Victorian era, catfish were introduced to British lakes, sometimes as food fish, sometimes for sport. Now, they wouldn't breed in Loch Ness because they need a temperature above 20 degrees C, and you don't get a lot of that in Loch Ness. But one or two survivors, um, very long lived, they're supposed to live for 100 years or more, <laughs> uh, introduced to lakes in the catchment, might conceivably have got into Loch Ness. And because there'd only be two or three of them, or one or two, they wouldn't necessarily come up in the eDNA survey because of the low density. We didn't find otter DNA, and we know there are otters in Loch Ness sometimes, we didn't find meganza DNA. And the last theory, which again is rather lateral, is the eunuch eel theory. The idea that an ordinary eel or some of them might not go back to the Sargasso Sea to spawn but become enormous and they wouldn't breed because to breed they'd have to go to the Sargasso Sea. So they would in effect enter in plain sight. And yes, the environmental DNA uh, experiment found lots of eel DNA, but that eel DNA would be the ordinary eel DNA because the gigantic eel would have exactly the same DNA. And so there you are, you've got three possibilities um, to keep the fun going. And that's the point, the fun is, is really a mental game.
1: Sure. Right. It it's just the but those are possibilities. It's that kernel of of possible reality that keeps us going. That if it one of those the three can maybe be the uh the answer, then okay, the, the game's still on, as you said.
0: Oh yes, game
1: game's on in those terms. Right. In a in a way that's much more believable than say a prehistoric dinosaur that's been living in this that, that,
0: that went out that went out as far as the investigators were concerned in the 1970s
1: and that's not even on the table anymore right right
0: it's not on the table now
1: <laughs> well we look forward to mr. shine's uh, book that it sounds like due out next year because that sounds really interesting and the whole thing is really fascinating you know thank you so much for for joining me and kind of just dis- discussing and breaking down what makes this phenomenon alive and well you know 50 years later i mean that that's no small thing and and people do i mean i think there is belief wherever you go there's always gonna be a part of the population that wants to believe oh yeah um, i i think i'm more with you i i think uh it's it's easily explained but uh yeah that's uh i think we we agree with with uh with that sentiment
0: i don't know how easy it was it's taken me 50 years <laughs> Well, you seem
1: to be in good spirits, you know, doing this for 50 years. I think it would make another person maybe off their rocker a little bit, but you seem well-adjusted to be hunting something for 50 years that isn't even there in realistic terms. So Adrian, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure and uh, we look forward to reading the book and uh, maybe, you know, figuring out what the hell is in the Loch Ness. So thank you again.
0: It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Power Motor Yacht Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor and leave us a review or rating. Or you share us with your friends on social media or on the VHF. Anywhere you spread the word means a lot to us. Thanks
0: again, and until next time, we'll see you on the water.